Warning. This episode contains descriptions of potentially sensitive topics, such as violence and killing. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Bright on Buddhism. Today, we feel uniquely compelled to diverge from our usual schedule for a while to address an issue that seems increasingly pressing in the United States. Today, we will be talking about Buddhism and evil. What is evil in Buddhism? How does the conception of evil change over time? According to the Buddhist scriptures, what ought to be done about evil? We hope you enjoy. So, let's begin. What is evil in Buddhism? In our Western usage of the word, evil refers to the absolute utmost moral bad. It is sometimes situational in that a non-evil person can sometimes do an evil thing, but it's also more reflective of an absolute moral bad that is large and abstract and is played out in a larger pattern of a person's behavior and personality than in one single thing that a non-evil person can do or does. The reason for that is that there is a bad moral outcome of an action, but also the bad moral intent of the action. In other words, evil represents the successful execution or realization of malicious intent. This intent is defined as malicious according to a large variety of different principles. Some of them are religious and some of them are not, but it should go without saying that evil has strong roots in a religious connotation. In that connotation, it is defined as being antithetical to what we call good, and it is meant to be overcome in the universal order of things by what we call good. It is always important to be on the same page with one's own conception of something like this before jumping into somebody else's. In Buddhism, evil roughly means the same things. A word that closely approximates the English word evil in Sanskrit and in Pali is this term papa which can be used to describe anything bad, wicked, troublesome, harmful, inauspicious, vile, or wretched. Although there are many interpretations of what things actually are and are not evil, and how and why, most Buddhists would agree and regard evil as the consequence of immoral actions in the past that come back around and worsen the circumstances of the person who did the act. That is to say that experiencing evil now is the karmic consequence of having done something bad in the past. In Buddhism, evil is constituted by things like the five heinous crimes, such as injuring the Buddha, killing an arhat, creating a schism in the Sangha, and killing one's own parents, with matricide and patricide being separate sins. There are also sins, however, which are the opposite of the ten good deeds. These would be killing, stealing, adultery, lying, slandering, harsh speech, idle chatter, greed, hatred, and delusion, but these are less severe than the five heinous crimes even while they are still evil sins. For those who are familiar with Judeo-Christian religion, there should not be anything especially new here except perhaps some of the speech items, such as harsh speech or idle chatter, and maybe also the point about delusion. That is to say that delusion itself is not a sin in Christianity. These are in here because there is another factor to evil in Buddhism that matters significantly for the moral framework of it. In Buddhism, morality is just as much an act of mind as it is an act of body. If we jump back to the Eightfold Path, this becomes increasingly obvious. You'll remember that there are two points on the Eightfold Path that are a part of the category of wisdom, or prajna, and these are namely right view and right resolve. These show that moral cultivation is not simply cultivating the right behaviors in life, 
but also the right thoughts and the right beliefs. Delusion is regarded as the source of behavior that we call evil, and that causes karmic retribution, and so purifying one's intentions, beliefs, and worldview are preventative medicines for evil in the present. To that end, Buddhist good and evil is almost simply and patently utilitarian. That which causes suffering for the most sentient beings in the world is the most evil, and that which causes the least is the least evil. Before we get into the next question, we should give attention to how evil is personified. Most, if not all, religions personify evil into a character who serves the purpose of representing what one ought not to do, and what will happen to you if you do evil things. A good example in Western religion is the devil, for example. In Buddhism, there are two characters who represent evil in two different ways. These characters are Mara and Devadatta. If you remember, Mara is the god of delusion, temptation, rebirth, and death. In the story of Shakyamuni Buddha, when he sat down under the Bodhi tree and resolved himself to not get up until he defeated aging, illness, death, and suffering, he had to undergo battle with this god Mara. Mara told him he should quit trying, and he was going to fail, and he was too weak, the task was too steep, etc. However, the Buddha defeated him and reached enlightenment. Mara represents abstract moral evil. He wants a world that is deluded and falls prey to temptations. That is to say that his main weapon is temptation and sensual pleasures and luxury and other such things. The reason he wants the world to fall prey to this and be deluded by it is that when people are in such a state, as I mentioned before, they do evil things and cause a bad state of affairs for everybody who inhabits the world. So he's not really in charge of any specific moral evil. He is abstract moral evil. He just wants the worst in general, rather than trying to foment some sort of specific circumstance. The other character, Devadatta, represents a specific human evil. Devadatta was a disciple of the Buddha and was actually also his cousin and brother-in-law, but he grew to be an incredibly divisive and evil figure. He tried to have the Buddha killed, he created a schism in the Sangha, and more. Accounts of his life vary widely because later authors will often use him as an archetype to represent their own message in texts. If you want to demonstrate that something is wrong, you have Devadatta do it, and the message gets across to the readers. The story about the Buddha resisting Mara to me has obvious and pretty easy to see parallels to the stories of Jesus resisting temptation from the devil. It's another story of the primary figure of the religion doing battle with the primary evil figure of a given religion. And also, Devadatta has parallels to Judas, which I believe we have discussed before in a previous episode. That's right, we have. So, yeah, this seems like something that that a listener, you know, more familiar with a Christian background can easily see the parallels there. So let's get back to the script. How does the Buddhist conception of evil change over time? As I'm sure many of you are thinking, good and evil is a dualism, and dualisms are discouraged, especially in the Mahayana traditions. Instead, according to the Mahayana, we ought to live transmorally, meaning that we ought to cultivate a mind that seeks to save all sentient beings and eradicate desire and delusion, and let our actions be guided by such intentions. Thus, the moral outcomes of our actions become ever less important than the intention we have while we do them. 
This is why we have mentioned in the past that in the Mahayana, some morally questionable or even morally reprehensible actions become excusable. Karmic bad is still karmic bad, but it becomes slightly better if it's done with the goal of enlightening people. If somebody earnestly intends to enlighten beings by demonstrating what not to do, they are forgiven in part for those immoral actions because they did them hoping to make things better for all sentient beings. We have talked about how this is dubious in the past, and I still think it is. We should note that people who do this are not completely forgiven because in true utilitarian fashion, their actions led to the suffering of a non-zero amount of the population, but at the same time, their positive intent is not forgotten. This is comparable to the Western philosophical thought experiment of the trolley problem. Sometimes you can be partially forgiven for having the train run over one person instead of five. However, at the same time, you must incur some sort of bad karma for making either one of those choices. There is a better choice, but they are both bad. There are some later doctrines in the Mahayana which introduce the problem of theodicy into Buddhism and which redefine the characters that we mentioned before, Mara and Devadatta. To begin with, for those that are not familiar, the problem with theodicy is a Judeo-Christian problem which asks, if God is an all-good, loving, and all-powerful creator, why does evil exist in the world? Buddhism never struggled with that question before the Mahayana because obviously there's no creator God in Buddhism. However, one Mahayana doctrine introduces a Buddhist theodicy, and that doctrine is Buddha nature and original enlightenment. As we have talked about extensively before, Buddha nature regards all beings as bearing the potential for fully realized Buddhahood sometime in the future, and original enlightenment is another iteration of this thought which regards all beings as being intrinsically and inherently enlightened sometime in the past, and we've simply lost that due to our past karma causing us to fall prey to desire and delusion all over again, and so we have to work to re-realize our enlightenment. These doctrines came about to close a very specific loop. In previous Buddhist thought, it was said that there was a non-zero population of sentient beings which, for some reason, given immeasurable lives, could not or would not reach enlightenment. These characters were called Ichantakas. They could be morally perfect individuals and even be reborn in the highest heaven realms as gods and have amazing lives and not be bad people at all, but they would never reach nirvana. It's an open question whether this is a matter of can't reach nirvana or don't reach nirvana. But in either case, it has to do with not knowing of or not accepting the Buddha's teaching. If all beings are originally enlightened or are of a nature to become Buddhas, why do they sometimes do evil things? This is the Buddhist theodicy problem. Answers vary widely and are highly interpretive and hotly debated. One important reason that's offered is that they do not know or accept or believe that they are of this nature to become a fully realized Buddha, and thus act out of delusion. There are many other proposed reasons we need not get into here. Thus, this theodicy is a lot easier to solve than the Judeo-Christian one. These issues of original enlightenment and Buddha nature and accompanying Bodhisattva philosophies also redefine Mara and Devadatta in some considerable ways. First, the Bodhisattva ideal argues that we ought to cultivate a mind that seeks to bring all sentient beings to enlightenment and even Buddhahood without discrimination. We should want to save the mosquitoes and Donald Trump as much as we want to save kittens and Mr. Rogers. This is much easier said than done. In that regard, pursuers of the Bodhisattva path cannot show their loving kindness and sympathy and compassion to some but not to others just because 
the others do evil or have done evil in the past. This does not mean, however, that evil ought to be forgiven and allowed to continue. To bring somebody to enlightenment and bodhisattvahood or Buddhahood naturally and necessarily means to bring about the cessation of their evil. In other words, it naturally and necessarily means to rehabilitate them in some way. Buddhas and bodhisattvas do not do evil things, so to lead somebody to that place is to put a stop to their evil. It is a matter of teaching them to care for the wellness and salvation of all sentient beings in the same way that the bodhisattva or the Buddha does. Bodhisattvas must also take no joy in the suffering of any sentient being. To that end, Mara is no longer the devil of Buddhism, and Devadatta is no longer the Judas, but instead, these are beings who deserve our compassion and loving kindness because they can and should be rehabilitated. At the heart of this sentiment, as you can likely see, is an argument that all sentient beings are inherently good or inherently have the capacity for good. Here you can see the original enlightenment or the Buddha nature argument. These doctrinal points are taken to the extreme in the Mahayana, and as a result, as you saw, the characters I mentioned before are totally redefined. In fact, Chapter 12 of the Lotus Sutra is called the Devadatta chapter, and the central argument of that chapter is universal Buddha nature. Even a character as evil as Devadatta will, given immeasurable time, become a Buddha. Thus, people like him ought not to be seen only as perpetrators of evil, but also as having the capacity for complete and absolute redemption. According to the Buddhist scriptures, what ought to be done about evil? Obviously, we covered that evil ought not to be done by anybody. However, it is still the reality that evil exists in the world, and so there are prescriptions for what to do about it. Although Buddhism encourages non-violence, loving-kindness, compassion, and sympathy for all sentient beings, evil still ought not to be tolerated. If evil is done unto you, you are not asked to just turn the other cheek. Instead, you ought to address the issue non-violently, lovingly, kindly, compassionately, sympathetically, and so on. In colloquial terms, we say, killing them with kindness. This does not mean just being nice to your oppressors in the hope that they will be better someday. That is just complacency. This literally means changing them and their behaviors in a way that does not worsen your karma or theirs. There is a really good example of how to exude bodhisattva values without being overly passive in a popular Western anime that I grew up watching. In America, we have a cartoon called Avatar the Last Airbender, and in it, there is a character named Uncle Iroh, who, although he was once a very famous and effective military general, he chose a life of kindness in his old age. In one scene, he is getting mugged by a man with a knife. He is an expert martial artist and could waste the guy in a heartbeat. Instead, he critiques the guy's stance and gets to talking to him and drinking tea with him, and he says, you don't seem the type for mugging. This causes the guy to open up and talk about how he's been having hard times and how he's really confused lately and things like that. Over tea, Iroh finds out that the man wanted to be a masseuse and gives him all of this wonderful encouragement and hears him out about his problems, and the man leaves the encounter ostensibly never having the desire to mug somebody ever again. The encounter fundamentally changed the guy as a person and changed his entire stream of causality. That is to say that everything that happened after that encounter was different than if that encounter had not happened. This is the logic of merit transfer. Being so karmically good that other people's karma is improved just by being near you. 
This story in Avatar The Last Airbender is the most poignant example of what ought to be done about evil according to the Mahayana Bodhisattva scheme that I've ever seen. Obviously, there are other schemes in Buddhism which value loving-kindness and compassion behaviors, but they also may still uphold the concept of the Achantika. This Achantika idea is rooted in this idea that there are people who are unable to be redeemed, unable to be rehabilitated. This idea is still held in some Theravada schools, for example. The reason that this idea is still held in the Theravada schools is that they believe that the Bodhisattva ideal is not accessible to everybody at their present stage of development, and one must fully purify themselves before having any hope of purifying anybody else. Also, it can be just really hard to sit down with somebody who is abjectly evil and spiritually rehabilitate them. It is so difficult at times that I personally wonder if it's even possible. But I'm currently unenlightened, so I'm no authority on the subject. Avatar The Last Airbender is a children's cartoon, so the mugger guy was only as evil as could be shown on children's television. There is real evil out there which would obviously not respond as positively and quickly to such rehabilitation. Especially in the West, one need only look around them to see the evidence for this claim. For example, many people in the US are highly resistant to any external stimuli and sometimes even internal ones which are aimed at improving them as people. That is to say that many in the US are now violently resistant to being educated, resistant to having their social horizons broadened, and resistant to expanding their circle of care and concern beyond their tribe, whether that tribe is organized by race, sexual or gender orientation, political affiliation, or any other arbitrarily socially constructed identity. For them, in the scheme that is presented in Buddhism, it would likely take a fully realized Buddha, not just a bodhisattva, to get them to change their ways. Still, even that might not work. In America, we often say here that if Jesus came back and conservative white American Christians saw a Middle Eastern man feeding the poor, loving people indiscriminately, being critical of the wealthy, and all the other stuff that he actually did do in the Bible, they would literally crucify him all over again. So, in a normal episode, this would be where we would thank you for listening and preview what we're talking about next week. Instead, at this point, we're going to step out of the scholarly and anecdotal context that we've been talking about to focus on why we did this episode. We have already done multiple Buddhist episodes about the current rise of fascism, transphobia, and the like. Between those episodes and now, things have only gotten worse. Thus, we felt compelled to revisit the topic to see what Buddhist sources think on the subject rather than just ourselves. I think that revisiting this on a regular basis is difficult but necessary. It is always necessary to call out evil where and when it occurs and strive to stop it. That is truth that transcends Buddhism or any other secular or religious identity or affiliation or doctrinal scheme. However, as universal as that is, Doing this on a regular basis is really difficult. The reason why is that every time we do an episode on this, the evil around us gets worse and more intense and more widespread, and yet I feel myself, find myself, saying the same things over and over again. Namely, I find myself getting on here and saying that a large portion of the United States and large portions of other populations in the world are unifying under banners of hate and violence, and they are exacting that hate and violence at every possible level of society, and this is bad and should stop. However, it never does stop. I think that evil is an inherent part of human existence. 
not the whole thing, but an inherent part, meaning that I believe that there will always be evil people out there or people who do evil things, but I think we are in a uniquely poor position at the moment because those people are being given powers and immunities at the highest levels of media, government, and society, or they are taking those powers and immunities without being punished at all. To make matters worse, they are using those powers and immunities to expand their base, to move against whoever their hate and violence is aimed at, and to create a world that favors them at the expense of everybody else. That is simply unacceptable. I don't have anything to say other than I hope they all lose and suffer ad infinitum for their transgressions. I have a personal interpretation of the world's current predicament, a way to see parallels between what's happening today and what Buddhist thinkers were discussing in the past. History doesn't necessarily repeat, but it does frequently rhyme, and so do the stories we tell each other throughout history. To me, Mara thematically rhymes with capitalism, a societal embrace of greed, competition, individualism, and excess. Oppressing the poor, deluding people who listen to it into thinking that money is the most important thing. Meanwhile, Devadatta rhymes with fascism, a human desire to divide, antagonize, and spread ill will, leading people to hurt and hate others. And just so I'm not misunderstood, American Republicans are fascists. Their leaders are openly calling for restrictions to personal liberties, expanding the state's control over its citizens, and the elimination of entire identities, all to thunderous applause from their base. They pose a threat to everyone, especially to LGBT+, non-white, non-male, non-Christian people. We must name this what it is, evil. And that's why we did this episode. Thank you for listening, even if it was a difficult thing to listen to. It's not going to stop, though. Next week, we will be discussing Buddhist ideas and views on violence. What constitute violence in Buddhism? How does the conception of violence change over time? According to the Buddhist scriptures, what ought to be done about violence? Om Mani Padme Hum. We thought that at the end of this episode, it would be good to include a mantra or a chant for peace and for the cessation of violence and evil in the world. And this one is specifically the mantra for Avalokiteshvara. Some translations say that Mani Padme refers to the jewel in the lotus, which is another title or another epithet for Avalokiteshvara. And Om at the beginning and Hom at the end don't have any linguistic meaning or any definitions, some think, but they are letters in the Sanskrit alphabet, which are regarded as being divine sounds, especially in the esoteric tradition. If you remember, Avalokiteshvara is the bodhisattva of compassion and mercy and salvation of all sentient beings. And so once again, a chant or a prayer in Buddhism for the cessation of evil and for peace on all worlds, including this one. Om Mani Padme Home.